Hello and welcome to episode 20 of the Telling the Story podcast. This is the audio branch of the Telling the Story blog at tellingthestoryblog.com. A look at how journalists and all of us reach the world. I am Matt Pearl, author of the Telling the Story blog and a reporter at NBC in Atlanta. We are getting ready around here to say goodbye. One of our longtime reporters at 11 Alive is retiring after 36 years with the station. He's seen it all and he's got the stories to prove it. Paul Crawley, welcome to the Telling the Story podcast. Good to be here, Matt. First of all, Paul, congratulations. And uh, when this gets posted, you'll have one day left of your 11 Alive career. Right now you have a little less than two weeks. How do you feel? Ready. I'm ready to go. Do you remember the first story you did in Atlanta? Um, it was an election story. I was thrown right into an election primary night. And went to a candidate's headquarters, had to be live all evening, as we've all done those, and knew absolutely nothing about the, uh, the local election scenario here, having been in town only about two days. But uh, And that was pre-internet when you could do quick homework, instant homework. Mm-hmm. But I was assisted by some gracious reporters on the scene who I pulled aside and said, oh, who is this guy and what do I need to know you say about him? <laughs> so we do tend to help each other. And, uh, but I made it through it. I made it through it. I, uh, I was thinking about this on the way in, and I, I promised that I would say it before you did because I didn't know if this would be coming. But you have worked at this station longer than I have been alive. And it, it, it's, it's a humbling thing to think about, I think, because even at my age, I'm 32, and, and I do think about, you know, how much of my life has already gone by and, you know, things I won't get back. But then I look at someone like you, and I feel like, you know, he worked at one place for 36 years. You were just wrapping up 36 years now. And it's exciting. It's inspiring to think about just how things, especially in what is relatively a young business, television news, it's only been around since the 40s, 50s, how much things have evolved and changed uh, in that time. That's correct. In fact, I started out in film days, uh, early days of film, just for the first couple of years. Been through, uh, oh gosh, four or five versions of videotape. And, you know, it seems like now with the speed of technology um, going like a, a, a raging steam engine, you know, we're, we're changing. We have a training session about every other month, you know, to learn something new. So that's the old, the old expression. I wish I had a nickel for every time I've learned something new in technology. <laughs> Most of it has moved us forward. But, um, yeah, I, when I first came here, it was not my intention to stay here that long. As a young single guy in the business, the big idea back then was to go network, you know, and all that. And, and uh, I actually did get offered a network job after about uh, six years here. But it was as a field producer in Chicago. Uh, a, I didn't want to go to Chicago. B, I like being a reporter, a storyteller, really, is what I call it. I think reporter's a little too lofty. I mean, we're all basically storytellers. Absolutely. Yeah. And so uh, I don't know. You know, you get married, you have children, you get in there. My family's all uh, within driving distance of here. And after a while, you realize that uh, there's not a whole lot of difference in newsrooms in this country. Um, And I also found it an advantage. Um, I think one of our photographers, Mike Zakel, once said the problem with news is there's no context. Everyone acts like that, you know, Tonight's 6 o'clock rundown, you just toss in the trash can and we move on. When it's really a continuation of events. I mean, the same story continues on and on and on. It may rear its head again. So it's kind of nice to be able to say, well, this is the third time that this guy's pulled this. You know? yeah. 
Absolutely. I, I, I have to ask you this question. What stands out to you most about those, those early years that would just shock a news viewer and a news employee today? Well, you mean professionally or personally? Because uh, uh, Let's go professionally for this one. We were, we were all young, and we, we all uh, partied a lot back then. It was, a, it was a heartier environment, let's say. By we, you mean uh, TV journalists? People in the business, yeah, yeah, I think part of it. But um, I guess what really surprised me about it was, you know, I came from the Raleigh-Durham market and had never really lived in a city as big as Atlanta. When I walked into Atlanta or when I was taking the cab from the airport and saw the city, I thought, oh, my goodness, you know the home of civil rights, the home of all these famous people I'd heard about. But you quickly learn in this business that, uh, as someone once said, everybody puts their pants on the same way. Mm -hmm. And these are human beings. You have to treat their office with respect, but at the same time, uh, don't be intimidated by them. So I guess it, it took a while as a young journalist to, to realize that I had the right to ask impertinent questions of these people, as long as I was polite to their, to their position. I would say so. It took a while to get used to to the big city, and and uh, but I was helped very much so by fellow people uh, here at the station, coworkers, who were kind enough, uh, despite their ribbing, to to nudge me or to say, "No, that's not how you pronounce DeKalb County." You know? <laughs> yes, people think it's DeKalb. Um, I uh, I entered this business three decades after you did, and and arrived amidst a sea of negativity. People talking about how TV news is dying, the business isn't the same, money's just not flowing like it once was. Tell us, uh, Paul Crawley, what symbolized that era when the money was flowing in TV news? Yeah, we used to call it a license to print money. In fact, I remember the big thing back in the 70s was if you had the money and bought a small-town radio station, you could pretty much prop your feet in and watch that goose lay the golden eggs, which is not the case anymore. Um, there was a lot of money flowing. Salaries were, of course, very good. Once you made it to a major market, I didn't realize how underpaid I was until <laughs> after my second contract. But, um, and, you know, we were not doing nearly as many jobs as we are now. You know, you and I both being, being uh, wearing several hats in our business, uh, we are, are, are doing many different things. And to me, to some extent, it's at the, at the expense of having been a reporter and just a reporter. However, the tools like the Internet um, are, are far greater these days. But, yeah, that was the heyday. Uh, some people refer to it as the golden era of broadcast news. We all grew up watching Walter Cronkite and wanting to be Walter Cronkite. And, and uh, I remember getting my first mic flag and being so proud of it, you know. Um, but you become cynical in this business. You get a thick skin like everybody does. I'm sure police officers uh, go through that. And uh, the reality comes in. But, you know, the Internet... Uh, this is no great insight on my part, but certainly I've heard this. I agree. The Internet was the, the second biggest communication revolution behind the printing press. Mm. You know, prior to the printing press, only a handful of people knew what the Bible said, and trust me, I'll tell you what Jesus said. And that's why they didn't want the public to be able to read it. So the, the, the same thing with the Internet. Now, the problem now is there's so much information out there, it's hard to sort through it all and to make sure that it's true. So it's it's become a lot a lot trickier these days. Yeah, when I when I watch big stories unfold today, I it's it's fascinating to me. And you know, and, and the most recent example I can refer to is actually the the NBA and where's LeBron James going to go? 
And for about two weeks, you saw individual sports reporters kind of gathering whatever kernels of information they could. And they would report their stories, but it would all kind of funnel into one giant news story moving forward. And everybody would use everyone else's tweets and material, and it all coalesced into one big story. And that, to me, is a big change from the thinking that that I have a lot of times where I go out where I feel like I'm going to tell the defining version of a story. And I feel like probably back then you had that authority more, whereas now, you know, it does feel like the it does feel like there is one homogenous media sometimes where it is all kind of flowing in the same direction. Well, it's also a bit schizophrenic. You know, you're getting hit from so many different directions. When I would go do a story uh, 30 years ago, you know, it was up to me. I mean, I had to get the information. I had to find the sources. First thing I would do if I went to a small town would be to find the local newspaper. Not so much to steal their material, but to go meet that editor or that person because they knew everybody in town. They knew who was who and what everyone's agenda was. And I would sit there and go, look, I've got two hours here. Here's the issue. Who would you suggest I interview? And and, and what, what are they likely to say, and can I believe them? So we've always helped each other out in that way. But now you have the advantage of, you know, being able to sit in your car. And, and, and I remember I was at a news conference not long ago where a longtime Politico trying to make a comeback announces for sheriff. And back in my mind, I remember he had voted down police raises at one time. So I just sat there in the car five minutes before the news, you know, started Googling Vernon, you know, and came up with all this great stuff. And so five minutes later in the news conference, I tore him to pieces over it, you know. First he denied it, and then I showed it to him. And uh, you, you could, that was really hard to do back then. But at the same time, you have to be very careful just because it's out there. You know, we still have to worry about verifying it ourselves because, the, you know, that, that's when somebody makes a mistake and it's perpetuated by everyone simply because somebody says so. You, you need to check it out if you can. This is the Telling the Story podcast. I'm Matt Pearl. He is Paul Crawley, longtime reporter at 11 Alive in Atlanta, set to ride off into the Atlanta, hot Atlanta summer sunset after 36 years with the station. Paul, we've talked a lot about your early career, but let's shift to the later stages. You referenced this earlier on. You made a big change. Uh, probably about six, seven years ago now, you were asked to become a backpack journalist to shoot your own stories, and you said yes. Why? I like to call it brokeback journalist, but actually the cameras are a lot lighter than... Um, actually, I volunteered for that, Matt, because I saw the handwriting on the wall, and we are all in our survival mode in our, in our business. Our you volunteered for that? Yes, I did. But I actually started out that way. When I first got into the business, working at a small station in Raleigh-Durham Market, I was what back then they called a one-man band. But I had a 35-pound, 16-millimeter film camera and about a 100-pound wooden tripod. That would really break your back. Yeah, but I was also 25 years old, so <laughs> you know it was a lot easier to haul around. So I had done that. In fact, when I came here uh, in 1978 and did not have a camera, I, was, I felt naked. Because I said, what if I happen up on something? You know, I won't be able to shoot it. So it actually bothered me at first. Uh, and I've worked with a lot of wonderful photographers who, who I paid attention to and who've given me a lot of tips over the years in shooting. So I came out of uh, University of North Carolina broadcast school. I had studied film. I had made movies as a student and that kind of thing. And video's always been sort of a little sideline of mine issue. I like video. So, you know, no, I'm not in PPA, but I was able to do it. And when I saw the handwriting on the wall of what's happening in the business 
And no offense to photographers, because it is good to have a second brain with you on a story. It's good to have that safety factor of someone watching your back. But at the same time, when you're a one-man band, as we used to call it. People uh, still call it that, too. Yeah, okay. Well, nowadays, um, the neat thing about it is that you have that story in your head. You know what you want to do with it. So it helps you decide how to shoot it. And it helps you know what you've shot. It just makes it's like the more people you get on a committee, the harder it is to do anything creative. That's not again to anything against good photographers because we need them, and they're very helpful and creative, and they can do stories on their own as well. But it was a choice, but it was mainly out of what I saw as the shrinking nature of our business and how am I going to get my kids through college? Given that it was something you hadn't done. I'm guessing in around 30 years, by the time you picked it back up again, what were the what were the biggest changes that you noticed between the first time and this time, and what were the biggest challenges getting back into it? Learning the equipment. Uh, there are still buttons on my camera that I have no idea what they do. <laughs> you and me both. And I was handed this thing with no manual, and said, "Go today." You know, no no break in time, no training. Now, you know, I knew how to white balance, and I knew the basics, but I'm getting all this zebra stuff and everything. I have to figure out what the heck is this. And, you know, I remember pulling it out one time to shoot an interview, and everything was dark green, and I had accidentally hit an infrared button on the thing. Uh, you know, it took me a while to figure that out. But I did get a manual. I did study the manual and go through it. And I would ask questions of other people and say, you know, what what is this? But I knew the basics about uh, one, one thing in particular I always tell uh, younger photographers is do not trust anything automatic. Automatic iris, automatic focus. Uh, they're basically for the lazy person. I keep my camera set on automatic. I have it set on a medium setting for outdoor shooting in case I happen upon some huge spot news story in front of me because all I have to do is take the lens cover off and push go. That's where I set it. But when you're going around doing your story, you have to uh, constantly rebalance. And, and, and yeah, you can use automatics, but I see video all the time where a photographer is panning from a darker area to a lighter area and the camera, like your eyes in a bright light, you know, wow, too much. And I sit there and go, you know, you need to, you need to fool that camera sometimes to get the effect you need, and you need to, to play with that. And what's interesting, too, is, you know, most, um, most backpack journalists are younger. They're usually general assignment, and they're going out into the field and finding stories. And, you know, you are most notable around here is one of our ace political reporters. And, you know, you've spent months at the state capitol in Georgia covering the legislature, which I find to be a very interesting prospect as far as backpack journalism because now you're chasing down politicians. You, a lot of the time, you're waiting for meetings to end and you have a very compressed amount of time. And in my head, I'm thinking that in those situations, I would love to have a second person there because in those situations, you do sometimes need to be multiple places at once. You need to be, you know, a lot of the time that you could be spending logging and writing and editing your piece, you're waiting for someone to walk out of a room. How did shooting your own stuff change those days, even though I know a lot of the time you were with a photographer for those sessions? Well, yeah, that is true. Uh, it is difficult, particularly if you need that extra shot of the guy bonding out of jail that could happen any moment all afternoon, and you've got to be in the car with your laptop editing your piece. But you know what? Um, you're stuck with what you've got. You have to, they call it triaging when you come up on a huge scene of a disaster and they have to say, well, this guy's not going to make it, so uh, forget him. I will go on to the people I can save. 
So, you know, you learn things like when you show up at something and you go, wow, I need a great shot of that sign or that building, but this guy's getting out of his car. Well, the building's not going to go anywhere. Okay? Get what you need to get while it's happening and then worry about the establishing shots. and stuff. You have to prioritize, and sometimes you have to just write it off. You have to just say, you know what, I don't really have time for that. I mean, I've had sometimes uh, people back at the station say, did we get the thing? I said, do you want the story? <laughs> Or you want the shot of the guy getting in the car? You know, I've already got his mug shot. I've already got him in court. We have him, okay? You know, uh, you want it? You send me somebody. So you, you have to sometimes you do you have to prioritize and just write it off. One thing I, I've learned to love, by the way, is the Paul Crawley return volley, where you are asked a question and immediately respond with a question that is more accurate and uh, and completely defuses the nature of the original question your way. It's a very very wonderful talent you have. Well, I appreciate that. I'm not sure I know what you're talking about, but anyway. <laughs> like if someone asks you, hey, did we get that story, or did we get that shot, you'll say, hey, did you want the story? And boom, done. Oh, you mean around the newsroom, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we're all, we're all facing uh, uh, tighter budgets, uh, and uh, it's reality, you know. And so um, you have to deal with what you deal with. But at the same time, uh, when uh, what I will not do is I will not put up with someone saying, well, how come you know we didn't get that? And I'll go, well, because the other station had three crews there and they all were two people crews and you sent me by myself. You know, there are times when you feel like, uh, you probably heard me say this, I feel like I've been sent to the McDonald's drive through on foot with 50 cents and they want filet mignon. So, you know, there's a reality to it. I have to sit there and go, look, I'll do what I can do and you trust me, you know me, I'll do my best. But reality sets in here. So it's it's a matter of priorities. In, in a shrinking newsroom of where you commit your resources and how you commit them. But you have to, we all have to be realistic as to what you can want to expect, depending on what you've sent on something. Backpack journalism aside, obviously you've been here for 36 years. You've been in the business more than 40. What is, as you look at the landscape now, what is the most promising development and what is the least promising development that you see for TV news journalism, and maybe just to narrow it down a little bit, specifically local TV news journalism. Well, it's um, it's part of it, of course, is the internet, but all of all of the uh, electronic uh, information devices now. It's kind of like someone took a sledgehammer and hit a tomato. You know, what is journalism? It's all over the place. Are you the blogger in your mom's basement, or what? Are you the are you the tweeter? Uh, and it, that part bothers me because you know I was brought up giving training, a lot of my stations would have periodic seminars on libel and slander and trespassing and things you need to know uh, to survive out there on the street. And uh, I was also taught to be objective, you know, that I'm supposed to be the umpire in a ball game and throw the flags and call the touchdowns. I'm not supposed to take sides. Obviously, in some stories, there's a right and a wrong. But what bothers me about what's happening in the business editorially is we see people uh, putting their personal opinions and comments and stories, uh, which bothers me. And the second thing is this technology that has been so marvelous for us and is an instant information in your palm thing that is fabulous for journalists has also become an Achilles heel, and we've seen it with the Boston Marath uh, Marathon bombings and all, where people immediately just retweet this stuff or post this stuff out there without checking it out, and it turns out it's wrong or it's some kind of rumor. You know, I heard a news director years ago told me he'd rather get it right than get it first. Mm -hmm. And that's hard in this day and age of competitiveness. Another thing, too, is that, you know, it used to be 
youngsters coming right out of college and all, uh, they didn't watch TV news. And we said we had to grow them into it. Wait till they get married. Wait till they start paying taxes and buy a house. Then they're going to start paying attention. You know, it all sounds well and good till you need to pay attention to what the city council's up to <laughs> and your neighborhood. But um, now, uh, for the first time, I think about two years ago, I read that television set sales are down for the first time in history. Typewriters are gone, you know. But uh, it's so funny. We've gone HD. We have the best quality picture ever now, and people are watching stuff on their palm. To me, it's like getting LASIK surgery and buying bifocals, you know. It's kind of weird. But the problem now is people want information instantly. They're not going to wait and say, well, let's see what happens three hours from now on the 6 o'clock news. So we have to remember that 6 o'clock news is just one of many platforms we have. You can't wait if it's breaking news. But at the same time, you still have to. It really makes you schizophrenic. You, you feel like you're serving four or five masters. You know, That's the difficult part. I wanted to ask you about one thing you said just now. Because um, I do think it's very interesting. You mentioned that you don't like when reporters put their opinions into stories and how you refer to yourself as the umpire of the ball game. And I, I spoke with uh, an MMJ, actually, a few weeks ago who said not the opposite of that, but a, but a variation of that, and I wanted to hear kind of your thoughts on it. He felt like if he's out on a scene, uh, if he's covering a story, part of his responsibility as a journalist is to observe what others can't and to describe what a scene might feel like. Um, so, you know, if, if it's a particularly uh, heartbreaking scene, to mention that in a live shot, to mention that somewhere in a story. And not necessarily, you know, uh, political stories are one thing for sure, but not necessarily to opine about a story, but to observe a story and note some of the intangible, some of, some of the things that aren't just the facts. Do you agree with that, or do you kind of feel like, again, it's, it's your responsibility to stay as neutral as possible to the story, whatever that story might be? Well, we're certainly storytellers, and we have to be interesting and get people's attention. Uh, yes, there's emotion in a story. I try to let the people in the story convey that emotion. You know, the grieving family or the stunned, you know, victim or whatever, let them convey the emotion. Uh, that's the best way for me because, no offense, but sometimes if I'm sitting there and I see some news person say, oh, this was absolutely terrible, I'm thinking, really? Four kids dead? You, I needed you to tell me that? You know, obviously it's terrible. It's terrible on its face. So I don't need you, the journalist, telling me that I should think this is terrible. That's the downside of it. So, But there is a fine line in there somewhere where you, you do need to convey the emotion. You do need to convey what's happening. But I think it needs to be subtle. I don't think you need to hit people over the head with it. Um, and um, so that's where I stand. What I meant uh, by being an umpire, I don't mean being boring. I hope that I, we all have to fight that that problem, is <clears throat> not saying somebody is right or wrong in a story, you know, particularly. I mean, we've gotten 24-hour news networks now that are right-wing and left-wing, and all they end up doing is preaching to their own choir, and now we have people talking past each other instead of with each other and resolving problems. And I think that's one reason why our Congress is so polarized, our populace, our voting populace is so polarized, more so than ever. Politics has always been nasty. But now it's like everybody's entrenched and they, and they refuse to listen to the other guy. You have to listen to other people's opinions because you, you haven't thought of everything. Very true. 
This is the Telling the Story podcast. I am Matt Pearl. He is Paul Crawley, soon-to-be-retiring 11 Alive reporter and legend of the 11 Alive newsroom. I always like to use this last section of the podcast to ask my guests their advice for young storytellers. And I don't know how often you get these questions uh, these days when you're out in the field and you see some of the younger folks in the Atlanta market working. If they ever pick your brain a little bit, I think you should get those questions. What do you typically like to impart to those who are just coming up in the field? Well, uh, I actually was riding with an intern the other day, a very sharp intern, I might add, who uh, was interviewing me, and she said, "What?" She was interviewing you. Well, while we were riding, she was basically asking me, you know, <laughs> trying to, yeah, like, what, what would you suggest? What was your biggest mistake you ever made? And I, you know, I, I had never really thought of that, but I think it, we've all made mistakes. I, it all comes down to me to be careful not to make assumptions. You see a man and woman walking down the street with their arms around each other, you automatically assume they're romantically involved. What if their brother, sister, and their moms just died? You know, you don't know what's going on there. So check it out. You know, don't make assumption, as has been said, is the mother of screw-up. That's the polite word. But it is, you know. So when you're out on a story and you see something, do not make an assumption that that's the brother or the sister or the mother or the father or that that's the right car that hit the other car. You weren't there. You know, my motto is, I wasn't there, I didn't see it, I don't have the T-shirt. So we're all reconstructing stuff. Yeah, sure, occasionally we get something when it shows. But even when people send you a video off their cell phone and you go, oh, look at this guy getting beaten up. Yeah, well, what preceded that? You know, the fact that he just, you know, hit five people and they were protecting themselves. So, you know, you need to check stuff out before you reach conclusions. That's a classical young person thing, too, I feel like, is to, you know, you arrive and you just assume you know everything, right. whereas I think once you've aged a little bit and you've experienced a little bit, you kind of learn that there's a lot more to the story than usually meets the eye. Another piece of advice I'd give, and it falls right into that, is I don't know how many times I've been out on a story, particularly when someone, nowadays it's an email or we would get phone calls or letters from people, you need to check this out. This is a bad guy. He's ripping everybody off. I'll tell you what he did to me. And then you go out there and you find that story has turned 180 degrees. And the guy that called you is actually the bad guy. And he's trying to mess the other guy over and use you as his hammer. And I don't like being used. I used to say when I would turn stories on people like that and it would blow up in their face, yeah, I did the story all right, but it wasn't what they wanted. And when they get mad at me, I would just say, not nice to fool Mother News. Mm. You know, it's our job to check it out. No, you know, someone, this intern had never heard this before, which surprised me. She's almost graduating a major broadcasting school. The who, what, where, why, when of journalism. The hardest one to... To, to nail down, which you may never know, is why. Why did that father leave that baby in that hot car? Was it an accident? Did he not want a child anymore? You know, why did that plane crash? Okay, maybe a missile hit it. Whose missile was it? So, you know, you need to, to keep things like that in mind. And when it's frustrating when that policeman on the scene doesn't give you a very good interview because they go, well, we got a guy dead over here and we're checking it out. And you go, well, they're not... That's all they know. I mean, when they showed up, there weren't even any blue lights there, you know. So uh, you should approach you should approach it the, the same way, like Sherlock Holmes says: let the facts lead you to your conclusion, not the other way around. Don't go in with preconceived notions. You uh, started in this business in 1973. Were you uh, were you time machined forward in your life at that point to 2014? 
and you were coming out of college from the University of North Carolina and about to enter the field of journalism, would you do it? Would you do this career knowing what you know about what the field looks like now and how it's changed? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I don't regret it. The irony here is that I did not start out to get into this business. I was not on the school newspaper in high school. <coughs> Excuse me. I was um, in college. I actually went there hoping to be uh, a criminal uh, a defense attorney and prosecutor. I wanted to go to law school because I'd been on the debating team. And I had done a lot of theater. I double majored in theater. That was my first love. But I'm also convinced that a lot of people who end up as reporters in our business are somewhat frustrated actors, and a lot of the photographers are frustrated cinematographers. But that's good because we are performers too. You know, you have to be interesting. So I really fell into it by accident. When I was in college my freshman year, there was a, the campus radio station was down the hall, and a friend of mine said, you got a good voice. Why don't you go down there and be a boss jock, spin records, and get minimum wage? And I went, oh, yeah, that's cool. So I fell into it quite by accident. It was never my intention growing up to be a journalist. Uh, but once I got into it, I found it fascinating. Uh, you've probably heard me say this before, but the best comparison I make is I think I'm like a real-life Walter Mitty. I actually have flown in an F-15 Phantom. I actually have helped drive a nuclear submarine. I've interviewed every president since Gerald Ford, maybe not when they were president, when they were running, but I've interviewed them all face-to-face. -face. And I've also gone to a lot of sewage plants and city council meetings. So, but it's been fascinating. Uh, I love to go out and sample life. I'm a very dangerous person. I'm one of those people they warn you about who knows an awful little about an awful lot. Is that what you think you'll miss most about the field? I will miss being able to, to ask the governor impertinent questions mm -hmm. and get paid for it. <laughs> I like that. I will miss going through a graveyard with cadaver sniffing dogs when they've found 200-year-old graves of slaves that somebody's built a subdivision on that they didn't know about. I mean, real-life poltergeist, for goodness sake, you know. I will miss stuff like that. I'll miss a lot of the people. Uh, what I will probably not miss is the anxiety, the tension, and the stress, which it does to all of us and which we need to be careful to, uh, to manage. What do you feel like is the, not the secret, but, you know, you, you've had such longevity in this field, and, and to this day, you are still very much yourself. You are, you know, you, you have an agelessness about you, and I think that really comes through in the stories that you do. And I think, like, I think it's interesting what you said before about how, you know, it's so easy to get cynical quickly in this business, and yet you really, I feel like, do maintain that spirit of, I'm going to be Sherlock Holmes. I'm going to get to the bottom of this, and I'm not going to arrive on the scene of a story with my cookie-cutter mold for here's what's likely happened and here's how I'm going to do it. How have you maintained that enthusiasm for more than 40 years? Well, it is very easy. I used to joke that I have 10, 10, uh, 10 or 12 templates for stories, and all you have to do is fill in the blanks. <laughs> Just when you think you've seen it all, the good and the bad, you'll cover a story that absolutely disgusts you, or a story that renews your faith in humanity. And that's what kept me going, is, is actually going, wow, that's disgusting, or wow, that, that's just so cool. And being able to tell people, particularly the good stories. You know, someone once said, well, you know, all we do is cover bad news. And I read a Dutch proverb one time. I used to have it on my desk. It said, good news comes in stocking feet, socks. Bad news comes in wooden shoes. It's louder. 
You know, you don't go home going, I drove over five bridges and they're still there. But if one collapses, you tell everybody. So uh, people ask me, what do you got to do to be in this business? You have to be, number one, uh, a nosy, curious person, and you have to be a blabbermouth, okay? When you're standing there with a bunch of your friends and something's happening across the street and they're all debating what it is, gee, I bet it's this, I bet it's that, I wonder if it's that. You're the one who goes, I'll be right back, I'm going to go find out. And then when you get back and you have found out, you want to tell everybody. So you're tweeting it, you're Facebooking it, you know. You have to be a naturally curious person and you have to want to disseminate it. But at the same time, you have to have a lot of discipline and self-control to make sure that you've got it right. You know, the, the hammer over our heads has always been a lawsuit, you know. I've had people before on uh, public streets say, you can't take a picture of me. And I go, well, actually, this is a public street. I certainly can. But if you don't like what I say about you, you can sue me. You know, so uh, it's a huge, I'm, I always also in the back of my mind try to remember uh, what a dangerous responsibility we have. One misplaced fact can destroy someone's reputation, their business, their life. So we have a huge responsibility, and I don't mean that in any lofty sense. It's true. It's dangerous. You know, the pen is mightier than the sword. The tweet is mightier than the sword. You can do a lot more damage if you're not careful. But what bothers me most about what's happening nowadays, and this goes back to the accuracy thing, and, and being a more, well, there's no such thing as objective, but fair to everyone, is you can't lose your integrity. Because if people don't believe what you're saying, you're done. And you have to maintain that. And that's the scariest thing of all to me, is to make sure that, that when I did that story, you know, yeah, you're going to have critics. They don't like the style. They don't like what you said. I always love it on a, something like an abortion story where both sides criticize you. Then I feel like I've done my job. Paul, uh, I have to tell you, this has been wonderful chatting with you. I, I feel like, uh, especially both being backpack journalists, we're never in the same orbit together during the day. So it's actually nice to be able to sit down with you on the eve of your uh, retirement and really uh, hear a lot about your philosophy because it does really, uh, I think, just hold so strong, and I would imagine has held strong throughout your years in the business. I always like to end the podcast with a question I'm sure you've asked your guests many a time and your interview subjects. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that you wanted to add? That is the best question, Matt. We learn in our business. Some of the best sound bites I've ever gotten have come from that question. A photographer actually taught me that one time who would always ask it over my shoulder, and I said, that's a good idea. Um, just stick with it. You know, if you will learn early on if it's your cup of tea, so to speak. It is not for everybody. Again, to me, the toughest thing, once the excitement wears off a bit and the glamour, which, you know, I always joke about my memoir is going to be called Big Macs at 80 miles an hour in the front seat of my Honda. You know. That's a long title. Yeah, but and McDonald's would probably sue me. But <laughs> the thing about it is uh, once all that wears off, you need to decide, you know, is this really what I want to do? You need to accept the responsibility, and most important, it's not so bad now back when I first started when there was a lot of substance abuse and alcoholism, is be careful about your what it does to you personally because it does take its toll on you. Uh, I heard somebody say one time we need to have P PTSD treatment for journalists, and I laughed at first, but then I'm thinking, you know, we do see some pretty horrific stuff. But you will learn early on whether you want to do it. But if you do do it, don't take any shortcuts. You know, never assume anything. Check it out. 
make sure to get it right. And at least in our business, it helps when your face is on it because, you know, you're stuck with it, whatever you do, particularly now. You know, it's not like in the old days when the when you can just pretend like it didn't happen. Nowadays, it's out there in cyberspace. So, you know, and you will make mistakes, but learn from those mistakes and try not to do them again. And, uh, and be careful, both physically, uh, out, on the, out in the field. No story is worth your life, certainly not mine. And there are times when I've had to tell that producer, no, I'm not doing a live shot along the interstate at O-Dark 30, <laughs> you know, because I know people who've been killed doing that. Um, but just basically, uh, once you decide that's what you want to do, go at it with both hands and, uh, and good luck. Paul Crawley, congratulations on what has been a monumental career, and thanks for joining me on the podcast. My pleasure, Matt. All right, and the Telling the Story blog updates every Monday and Wednesday. The website is tellingthestoryblog.com. Rate and review this podcast on iTunes, and thank you for listening to this episode of the Telling the Story podcast. We will see you next time. Thank you.